well, I first of all, I need to share <clears throat> before we get started. We were talking, we were talking off the air uh, about uh, how I we were scarfing down some dinner here before uh, recording the episode, and I, uh, I I did something, I did something during dinner, and uh, I I want to throw it, I want to throw it to the group because oh my god, I'm not sure if it's normal or not. I've never done this before in my entire life. Um, you know, and as, as a person of a certain age that I am, um, it, it's not often you have that moment where you're like, I've never done this in my entire life. I've never done this. I, <laughs> I, uh, so I was eating, I was having some eggs. Okay. I was having eggs for dinner, which is fine. Um, but the eggs weren't really going to do it for me. So I was like, I need something else. This tells you a lot about the grocery situation in the painter house. Um, I needed something else. So I look in the in the pantry and we had like, you know how you have chips and like you've got the bag and you can tell by looking at the bag, there's not a whole lot going on in that bag. Yeah. It was just a little itty the, bitty little bit. You're at the end of the bag. End of the bag. And right. so I was like, that's all I got. Like I'm looking, I, I got nothing. I'm gonna have some of these chips. So I take, I take them and I was at my desk working, eat the eggs. Uh, and then I'm like reaching, you know, elbow deep into this bag of chips. I'm like, what am I doing? Be smart. So I dump the chip fragments into the bowl that I was eating my eggs out of. That not, That's not even weird. What I think I'm concerned about is that I then commenced to eat the potato chip crumbles with the spoon that I was eating my eggs with. Did you, Is wait, that wait, weird? Wait. Did you put the spoon into the bag? No, or I you poured just like, the chips. But so, so you're just using your same implement yep. to eat yeah. the, the to eat the the the, the shards of chips. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, uh, the... sprinkled on top of your eggs and what? No, no the eggs totally, were gone. The eggs were gone. That's totally fine. That's totally fine. Yeah. I thought that was yeah. going somewhere totally else. I thought you were going to say you've. I thought you were going to say you've set, eat, like got a new food. With chopsticks. Oh yeah. Well, that seems like yeah, uh, a challenge. I know, people, I know people who eat Cheetos and Doritos with chopsticks because then their wow. fingers don't get grody. That is brilliant. I'm no yeah, Cheeto right. fingers. No Cheeto yeah. fingers. I, I put smoked paprika on my homemade popcorn, which nice. results in Cheeto fingers. That's a thing. People have. That's a thing. I know a lot of people that do that. Man, a, you guys are yeah. like next level smoke, with the snacking. Paprika. <laughs> yeah. That's, so that's, yeah, Marcus, you're. you're Totally I'm okay. Fine. I'm okay that I ate the crumbles with the spoon. Yeah. I it was just weird. Right. Like for the first time in my life, like I, I'm sitting there eating potato chip crumbles out of a bowl with a spoon and I took a bite and I was like, what am I doing with my life? What is happening? So and I think so, that, yeah. I, I think that I would have, first off, I would have had ketchup on my plate with the eggs. So as the yeah. crumbles came in, I would have probably raked a little ketchup with the crumble and then just been in business because there isn't anything I love more. Was this a was this a regular Lay's potato chip or a Ruffles? This was this was a this was a original uh, Ridges the original straight up standard chip. Yep, right into the, the ketchup because I would have had ketchup with my eggs. Oh, I would have been in business. I, I like dip my time. my plain chips in ketchup. So yep, I, let's I go. Me too. That's a thing. It's so, like French fries. They're just yeah. really crispy. Yeah. Fair, I, I, fair. I'm gonna see you all these chips with your eggs and just raise you to tater tots. I mean, just tots. go directly yeah. to the tater tots. I, I'm with you. Now, um, if if there weren't a time crunch, pardon, yeah. but don't pardon okay. the pun. Um, yeah. If there had not been a time crunch, 
I would have gone with the tot. I would have broke out the air fryer. I'd have had the tots go oh, in boy. with, it would have been, it, I would have gone uh, ham uh, as, as the kids, <laughs> as the kids say, but uh, in the, in the four minutes, this is, Hey, this is good content, Eddie. This is good content. The, the, you got to give the people what they want. Episode 45 of the Canvas Casters with Melissa Greer and Linda Lee. Today we are discussing discussions. I'll let you guys write the ditty yourself. Discussing discussions within Canvas. Discussions are a love or no idea tool within Canvas. From what we hear, educators either absolutely love them or they use them and they use them all the time. They enhance them with media and they do amazing things. Or educators will say something like, yeah, discussions, I, I don't use them. Today is the day for our listeners to get the straight truth about discussions, both in K-12 and higher ed, from a couple of true Canvas Jedi. I'm excited because we have two fantastic individuals uh, in front of us today. I get the pleasure of introducing Melissa Greer, who began her career. Uh, something we have in common as a high school Latin teacher. I didn't teach Latin, but I was a high school teacher for the Newton College and Career Academy and STEM Institute in Covington, Georgia, where she herself attended growing up. I did that as well. I went back and taught at the school that I attended, which is an interesting, those of us that have done it, Melissa, I can't wait to talk about that with you. <laughs> this year, she moved into a digital learning coach role where she supports teachers at three middle schools. Currently, she's working on getting her doctorate in ed and curriculum and instruction with a concentration in instructional technology from Valdosta State University in her infinite free time, which she likes to joke. She likes to Wait. hang out with her boyfriend, dog, travel, cross stitch, decorate custom cookies, and just be a nerd, which is what we enjoy talking about all things nerdum. She likes to listen to this podcast or just podcasts in general. We like to think she listens to our podcast, but also play D&D, uh, Star Trek fan, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, books by Brandon Sanderson, etc. all things nerd. Can't wait to dig into those topics. Uh, Flip Greta, she is, uh, there's tons of certifications here, Melissa. So let's just, let's, let's rattle them off. Flipgrid level three, Google level one and two, Microsoft innovative educator expert, common sense media ambassador, book creator ambassador, Google Applied Digital School Skills Ambassador, Nearpod Certified Educator, and Nearpod Certified Trainer Level 1, Adobe Creative Educator Level 1, and Edpuzzle Level 2. Holy cow, that's a lot of certifications. I, badges Marcus, on badges on badges. Badges on badges on badges. If you saw her email, you'd have to keep scrolling. I don't know if you could ever stop. You'd have a badge after a badge after a badge after a badge. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. There and Eddie's Eddie, you're right. We got a lot to dig into there. We're gonna have to revisit that. Uh, I get the honor to uh, introduce uh, Linda Lee, who is a folklorist, educator, and instructional designer. She's the director of instructional design at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, where she leads instructional design and training efforts for the Idea Courseware team. Uh, she came to instructional design by way of adjunct teaching. She's used Canvas as an instructor since 2014, so I'm going to say OG, an original gangsta of Canvas, and as an admin since 2015 when she joined Wharton as the school's first instructional designer. Since then, she's developed deep expertise in inclusive course design and all things Canvas, including blueprint courses, discussions, 
uh, and group assignments. She's presented widely on these topics, including at InstructureCon 2021 and EduCause 2021, where she co-presented sessions on Change the Prompt, Not the Tool, Developing Effective Discussions with Penn colleagues Meryl Krieger and Adam Zolkover. Linda is also a part-time lecturer for Penn's School of Liberal and Professional Studies, where she teaches online and face-to-face -face folklore courses. Her academic research centers on fairy tales and their transformation in popular culture. And she has published on fairy tales and popular romance, reality TV as reimagined fairy tales, and trickster Biden memes, which I am I'm here for it. I, I, I gotta I gotta know more about that. Uh, Linda is a voracious reader and fears the day when she must relocate her library. Uh, just don't, just stay. Just stay and expand. Her favorite authors include Jane Austen. Uh, Idolo Calvino, Neil Gaiman, and Ellen Kushner. She is a grammar fiend, I also am such a thing, and holds a strong opinion on the proper use of the Oxford comma, which of course is to use it. Am I right, Linda? Absolutely. Linda is violently nodding in affirmation. I have no opinion. Eddie doesn't know what the Oxford comma is. Uh, she shares her home with three cats, and you can find details on their antics if you follow her on Twitter, at Linda Jean Lee. She also enjoys gardening, cooking, canning, and knitting. So much. Like, I think we can do a whole episode just talking about these two and talking with you guys about what you do and what your interests are, because it's all awesome. Um, so both of you, welcome. Uh, I am not going to get into the folklore conversation with you, Linda, because you'll make me uh, realize how little I do know. Uh, but I did teach a lot of folklore, Native American folklore in particular, Ooh. in high school, to my high school classes. And it was my favorite part of the whole year um, because it As was it so be. much fun. It was so much fun. A uh, little coyote, little little trickster tales. I was. It was very exciting to read that, uh, that that was kind of your, your sort of a specialty and expertise. So welcome you both. Uh, to the Canvas Casters podcast, um, and we're here talking about discussions, and and like I said in the intro, discussions seem to be. I'm going to say that discussions may be polarizing within Canvas, um, yes. within the world, uh, if you will. Uh, and I'll speak to my own experiences um, when I was using Canvas as a teacher. Uh, and as I was coaching folks uh, using Canvas, honestly, like I steered clear of discussions because as a middle and high school teacher, I was deathly afraid of what they might do, what those little lambs may say or do. And I was always, frankly, just a little bit of the control freak in me, you know, as, as a lot of educators I think we all probably have some of that. Um, so I'm going to come in hot here with Melissa as the uh, as a person in K-12, as a person who works with middle schools uh, specifically. Um, for those of uh, the, the listeners out there who are like me, who uh, were a little bit concerned about even even trying discussions uh, with with that that sort of population of students. Um, Talk to us a little bit about some of those early points of emphasis that you as a teacher and as an instructional coach that you establish when beginning to implement Canvas discussions. Yeah, so um, I think the first thing really is to understand that if you don't do any sort of prep work with the kids, 
uh, before you assign a discussion and have that, you you shouldn't expect for that discussion to go well. Because um, middle schoolers and high schoolers, which is the population I'm, I'm most used to, um, their whole thing is pushing boundaries, right? So they're going to push. And if you haven't set any boundaries, like for real, for real, then they're going to just walk all over the space and just be, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers. Right. Um, right. So um, I started using the discussions because I hate doing discussions in my grad school work. Uh, and I, I realized that one of the reasons why I hate them so much is because I was never taught how to reply to people. Hmm. And that is something that you have to, you have to talk to your, your students about before you ever assign a discussion. It's like how to be a productive replier um, on those discussions and not to, I don't know, post their SoundCloud link or whatever as their reply. <laughs> so um, I like to start with fun topics. So not at all content-based, just fun yep. things. I bought this book at Target called 3,000 Pick One Questions. And so I didn't have to come up with fun topics. I would just open to a page and stick my finger down and um, like, do you prefer pork rinds or corn nuts? And then I would kind of- Corn nuts myself. So you have these like, fun little topics made and you can up that DOK level. So even though it's not content by just asking why. So instead of just pick one, okay. And then why? So yep. that starts them on like a justification level sort of thing. Um, and then conversations usually naturally follow because I think creativity breeds conversation. So when you have those creative little topics that they're like into, they will start more organic conversations than I agree right with your stuff <laughs> like yes so you're gonna get better stuff if you start off from a fun place than if you start off from an academic place um and then just to set high expectations from the get-go but not not only to set them but to follow through with them so if you have a kid being a doofus in the discussion board that is when you screenshot it, email it to mom, and you do it like you follow through with what you say you're going to do if they don't act appropriately. Uh, and then after the first like one or two, then everyone's like, oh, she's serious. <laughs> right. And then the, they, they behave from then on because they lose privileges or they have to, you know, do ISS or whatever mm. for um, not doing what they're supposed to do. Um so that's kind of how I how I started and like the things I like to have teachers think about yeah. is what their expectations are for their behavior and then starting from a fun place. You said something in your answer and I thought like it it bears repeating like people don't know how to reply to each other. <laughs> I'm on the internet all the time, uh, probably a little too much if you ask my wife. Yep. I think people are applying just fine. <laughs> just that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> no one knows how to behave on no. the internet because we're used to being able to say whatever we want and however we want. Um, and we're bad at it. Like I, I think 
people should probably retroactively go back and be in your class and, and <laughs> learn about how to reply to each other in a in probably a civil manner. But one of the things that you mentioned kind of in an earlier discussion that we had is this idea of a, a gradual release of responsibility to students. Can you at least tell the people that are listening to this podcast what that looks like and what that really looks like in your classroom? Yeah, so I locked down my discussion boards. Um, when I would do it with kids. So when you go into settings on Canvas, there's like a teeny tiny little bit of type that says more options. And then in those more options are ways that you can lock down discussions. Um, so I, when I start off, they're not allowed to attach files. So they can't attach weird memes to their discussion yeah. board posts. Um, I don't allow them to create their own topics at first because we need to set a, like a standard of behavior and um, just how they're going to, you know, behave online. Uh, I also don't let them edit or delete their posts to start off with going hand in hand with not editing or deleting their posts is when you're creating the discussion, they can't see other people's replies until after they post. So yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, so they can't just type a dot and submit that and see everybody else's stuff and then copy someone else's work. Um, and then we talk about plagiarism and that whole uh, intellectual property and whatnot as a part of that discussion. Um, but I also don't, I, I rarely end up letting them edit or the, delete their post because if they mess up, then they are, we'll have a conversation and they have to post a reply to that post um, so that it shows that the, that they learned something from messing up because if the thing that gets me on like Facebook or Twitter is when somebody will say something and then get schooled in the comments and then they <laughs> delete their original post. So you only see the comments and you're like, what did they say? Yep. But being able to, um, to show those learning moments helps other students not make those mistakes as well. Um, but eventually after we have, you know, done discussions and we have demonstrated that we can be nice people on the internet and, and reply to things cordially and productively, um, then I start letting them attach files so they can show, have visual representations that support whatever point they're making. Um, and then I some eventually will let them create their own topics and, um, the topics that I assign, usually they decrease in their structure. So like what, like at the very beginning, like your post is very structured. The way that you reply to people is very structured and it gradually transitions into a more fluid, more organic mm -hmm. conversation, um, which kind of helps like get them to, especially with high schoolers, get them to a point where when they go to college, they're prepared to participate in those discussion boards that will happen. Yeah. Um, and then I actually was just reading the release notes on the new discussions redesign um, in Canvas. And there's now um, anonymous discussions, which I'm a little bit wary about. Um, but the there's a new, a new feature where kids can report replies. And I think that that's huge 
because having a kid go from Canvas to a different tab to get to their email to report something that they see, if they see it before I do, is, is a lot to expect of a student. Uh, but if they can just boop, boop, and, and report that reply, and then I can have the notification emailed to me, then that's an easier, quicker way to get things handled if something was like inappropriate. Sure, sure. There's, for those listening, like, again, and Eddie, we find ourselves doing this a lot where we'll be like, okay, take a pause. We're gonna pause. We're gonna reassess what we just learned because there's so much there uh, that I think is super, super important. Um, and I was, I was trying to type gently um, as I was taking my own notes. But uh, for, for, for those at home, there are some very significant things to take note of right here. Number one, and I, and I as a, a tech coach, I, I, I completely wholeheartedly agree. And I always did this when I was teaching as well was start with the fun stuff, right? Um, that's a great approach to discussions. It's a great approach just in general um, in, in terms of introducing new whatever. Um, and, and so my, my argument was always uh, within the tech realm. And so it was always, you know, start with, you know, if you're going to teach kids how to use blank tool, in this case, we're talking discussions, you want them to learn how to use the thing at this point and not be caught up in the content per se. Um, we get we get accustomed here first and we get our sort of our sea legs and then we can start racking our brains about the content, um, whatever that might be. And so I love the the fact that uh, Melissa would would generally recommend starting with something that's very uh, low stakes, uh, not not going to rack people's brains. We're not going to expose students uh, lack of knowledge. Any kid can decide between pork rinds and corn nuts. Uh, and you're so right that they're going to take that and run with it. They're going to take that and they're going to get real deep. I can imagine my daughter's 12. I can imagine her getting this kind of prompt and her and her little friends just going crazy with, you know, some kind of rant. <laughs> you know, this philosophical rant about Cool Ranch versus Spicy Nacho. Um, so I love that. Um, I, I love also the, the lock it down early and then eventually and slowly sort of release that responsibility because you're, you're establishing expectations. Um, you're showing them how to function in a, in a healthy way. Um, but it's, it's, it's under the mutual understanding that as you prove that you can handle, I guess is, there's probably a better word, but you can navigate this. Uh, then you will have more freedom to be more creative or express yourself with additional elements within discussions, which is such a good approach to it. Uh, the thing I would have never thought of that Melissa said there, and I saw you guys can't see it because it's a podcast, but Linda was all about this next point. So I can't wait to hear her, her perspective on it. But Melissa said, do not let students edit or delete within the discussion. And, but here's the thing, I was not prepared for the rationale and the rationale is brilliant. The rationale is if you botch what you typed as the participant in the discussion, you have to go back and edit and revise. And as a former English teacher, 
I mad love for basically forcing them <laughs> to look over what you just typed and what you just quote unquote submitted, what you just at to follow the social media path, what you just posted, what's there. And is that what you were trying to say? So you're really pushing kids, pushing learners of all ages, frankly, to go ahead and review your work. Go ahead and review that. Make sure it's you said it the way that you wanted it to say. Uh, you worded it properly. And everybody needs to take a second look. Uh, and I love that, that by doing that setting forces students to do something that academically we're always begging for our learners to do, which is review and and make sure that you're being as clear and concise as possible. So I love the rationale behind that. Um, so to be completely honest, we started with Melissa. Linda's been quietly, you know, off stage, if you will, uh, just being so well behaved. Her kittens are not tearing the house down yet. Um, and she's just been hanging out in the wings because Eddie and I wanted to start with, you know, what our comfort zone was, K-12. Um, so we started there, but Linda, you're here to represent higher ed um, and all of our Canvas fam out there that are in the higher ed, higher ed space. So based on what you just heard from Melissa uh, and what she's described, tell us about some of your early stages in your journey with Canvas discussions in that higher ed setting. Marcus and Eddie, thank you so much for including me in this conversation. So, so, so happy to be here. And I want to enthusiastically second everything that Melissa just said from, yes. from starting with fun stuff to scaffolding to setting expectations and also those settings that she talked about. I would agree with all of them except for the attaching files. We're going to start off with thinking about higher ed students in the higher ed space as being responsible enough to include attachments from the get go. But yep. everything else that Melissa said, I am so absolutely there for. In, in a higher ed classroom, you can still start with something fun. Use an, an introductory icebreaker at the very beginning of the semester uh, and have students get comfortable using the discussion space and using um, either attaching video or attaching an image or both, right, uh, in an introductory post where they say something a little bit about themselves, where you ask them to answer a fun question related to the course content. When I teach, I teach folklore classes, so it's always fun content, right? Um, or ask them to find a picture or something to get them to, to uh, take advantage of the either the formatting tools in the rich content editor um, in the discussion tool or the media tools to get them to know how to use it. Um, but I want to I want to echo some of what Melissa said about scaffolding responses. I think it is really really important to make your expectations clear for students to make to make it clear to them what you expect them to do in the assignment and if you expect them to respond what that response should consist of because as we all know as we've all heard especially over the last two years since the pandemic started students and teachers alike really um uh Marcus and Eddie, you guys positioned discussions as love it or don't use it. I, I'm going to go just right out there and say it's love it or hate it. Discussions are absolutely polarizing. And part of the reason why they're polarizing is because people use them badly so often. And um, one of the one, not the only way, but one of the ways in which discussions can be used badly is by not providing enough guidance for what students are expected to do. And that holds true at the at the um, 
collegiate level as oh. well as the K-12 level. You, you need to be able to tell students, uh, you need to be clear of, about what your expectations are and you need to be able to communicate those expectations to students. So I would say the most important thing that you need to do is to, is to think about, is to intentionally think about what you want them to do. You can't just say, I wanna have some discussions. I wanna give students a place to talk about things because that's gonna fail. That's absolutely yeah. gonna fail if you just- that's like, when, that's like when you say, okay guys, I, everybody be creative. Yeah, that yeah, creativity <laughs> on demand usually yeah. doesn't work, right? Uh, and and the same thing is true in in the in a discussion space. If you're giving students credit for it, if you're giving if you're holding students accountable for doing this, if you're making this part of their grade, however you're counting it into their grade, whether it's participation or a separate uh, a separate grade that they're getting for this learning activity, you need to think about what is it that they're getting out of it. Why are you having them do this? If it's just busy work, pitch it, don't have them do it. But if it's something that's connected to the objectives of the course, if it's something connected to the objectives of what you're having them learn, uh, having them work on, having them practice for, um, for either something that's happening in class or something that's happening outside of class, then discussions can be a really powerful way to do that because discussions are one of the only places in Canvas. And here we're talking just straight up Canvas tools. It's one of the only places in Canvas where student work is visible to other students. If you use the settings right in pages, you can make editable pages available for students. Right. Uh, but outside of say group work, you know, there's not, or, or peer review, there really are very few ways in Canvas where you can have students, students' contributions be visible to other students. And if you're doing anything where that would benefit from uh, students having visibility into what their peers are doing, then discussions are a tool that you want to use for that purpose. But you need to think intentionally about what you want them to do, why you're having them do that, and then craft your expectations in a way that that makes it clear what students are supposed to do. So they're, they're not mystified. So they're not confused. So they're not trying to guess, am I supposed to write a hundred words or am I supposed to write a thousand words for this? Because students can, can go wrong in both of those directions. For sure, and, for sure. And I've seen it in my own class. Absolutely, right? This, so you want to think about what they're doing. Linda, a lot of the things that I think you speak to kind of boil down to like, basic classroom management, right? And I think discussions is a microcosm of the classroom as an educator when you Absolutely. look at um, setting those foundation of expectations, setting responsibilities, uh, but also finding ways to scaffold. And, and that's a term that you hear a lot. Um, and I'd love to hear kind of your concept of, of what scaffolding responses look like in discussions. You know, what benefits have you seen using that with your students at the higher ed level? So um, that's a really great question, Eddie. I, I think the, the biggest benefit is not wasting people's time, not wasting your time, uh, not wasting your students' time, and not wasting the time of whoever it is is going to be evaluating, whether it's you or a TA who's gonna be evaluating what students have done. If you're clear, if you make it clear to students what they're supposed to do, then you're setting them up for success. You're making your job easier when it comes to, to comes to evaluating what they've done because you've already said, I am expecting that you're going to write 150 words answering this question and this question or whatever, whatever, however you're framing what that expectation is. And that expectation should include what the task is and how much you expect them to produce. So that might be 
that might be a paragraph or two, or that might be a bulleted list, or that might be um, a word count that you expect them to hit, but being really clear about what those expectations are. I'll give you a couple. I'll give you a couple of like really brief examples of um, some discussions uh, that that uh, I've done. One from my class and one from from one of our faculty from earlier this semester that can show ways in which you can give students an authentic way to contribute and some guidelines for what they're supposed to do and some guidelines for then what they're supposed to do with that if you expect them to reply. So well, that's, the, that's the kicker though, right? Is the authentic yeah, way yeah. to contribute because that's what my wife complained about. That's what you guys spoke to earlier. Eddie hinted at it as well is so often it's, you know, my wife in her grad class, it was must, you must respond to two posts in the discussion. And it was this burden of ugh, and she burden, hated it. Right, burden of ugh, that's a really great way of putting it, Marcus. <laughs> It, so you need to think about what are, what are you asking them to do and why are you asking them to look at other students' work? And it's not just because you think that they should have an audience. That might be one reason, but that's not a good enough reason to ask them to come back and respond. So this, this really puts the burden on the instructor to develop to develop really good prompts, to develop good learning activities that are going to be meaningful for students to 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 participate in. So I'll give you one example from one of my classes in an online fairy tales class that I taught. Um, I had students read, among other things, Angela Carter's story, The Bloody Chamber. Now her story, The Bloody Chamber, is, is filled with really um, sometimes very deeply obscure intertextual references, intertextual references that come from, that refer to Charles Perrault's story, Bluebeard, which Angela Carter's uh, The Bloody Chamber is an, is an adaptation of, um, uh, intertextual references to um, specific works of art, to fashion designers, to artists, music, musicians, uh, opera, pornography, the Marquis de Sade. Like there's a, there, there are, dozens and dozens and dozens of somewhat obscure intertextual references in this story. Like every paragraph is, is dripping with them. And so what I ask students to do, it's impossible for students to, to know everything that she references in the story. So what I ask them to do is I ask them to choose one thing from this, from this long, short story that is filled with all of these intertextual references that they don't understand. So pick one, do some research on it, not a ton of research, you know, Wikipedia and a little past Wikipedia to find out <laughs> something, to, to find out something about, about what they've chosen. And then write up um, a, a discussion post that identifies what they found, um, talks about the research that they did and what they found in their research, and then says something about how that learning about that contributed to their understanding of the story. And so now you've got a class filled with people who've each chosen something else that some part of the story that they saw referenced, but they didn't know what it meant. And they have a reason to go back and to read what other people have done. So in their replies, I ask them to, in the class, choose two people to reply to. But I don't just say, you know, I, I want them to reply in a way that's something more than just, hey, I agree, right? Right. So what cool, I ask them bro. to do, <laughs> right, cool, bro, that, you know, go beyond cool, bro. And this kind of learning activity has a ready-made path for that, right? Okay, so you've read this now. You've seen what someone says about how it's influenced, how they've 
understood the story. And now here's your opportunity to say how it's how that's further deepened your understanding of the story. So there's a there's a this is a I think a really sort of obvious approach to take with this with this particular kind of learning activity. Um, but it it's it's a really successful one. It's this is what I mean by an authentic reason to come back, an authentic yeah. reason to participate. There's there's something in it for the students that's not just checking a box. Yeah. This, so I I'm like ready to like jump through a wall because I'm so stoked about this because uh, it, it this is the jigsaw activity. This is mm -hmm. exactly. this is jigsaw, exactly. but in in a discussion, and, and like exactly. again, this it's a it's, divide it's an... and conquer sort of approach where everybody's got a vested interest, and this student is into you know uh, pop culture, and so he or she got this reference in the story. But over here, we got this other student who is really into classical music and he or she got this other reference so it's like you're giving them they're having ownership of honestly like their own interests in in this space in yep. this particular example which is beautiful um I, but I, I love that it's taking this classic approach building it into this you know piece of technology that can be intimidating but like everybody that's in a classroom right now worldwide knows what a jigsaw activity is and what this tells me is you can take the old tactic and re rebuild it in in something using the tech and it's enhanced and awesome and like i would want to do that that's something i would want to do exactly so so when i think about when i think about what makes for a good discussion activity in a class that I'm teaching, what makes for a good, usually asynchronous discussion activity, right? I think about what's worked in my face-to-face -face classes, which kinds of questions, which kinds of prompts, which kinds of activities have worked. And, think of, and I think about how to adapt that to an asynchronous uh, modality and, and what will then make that successful. And there are so many ways in which we can do that. Let's turn to Melissa now. Melissa, obviously we're talking on the topic of scaffolding responses and how it can be impactful with your students. Obviously in the K-12 world, you have a little bit different perspective. So uh, give us some examples, you know, maybe a good primary example, middle school example, a high school example, something that uh, happens in your world there on the K-12 side. Sure. Okay. So I, as far as scaffolding goes, um, I really think that giving an example of a reply is really important. Um, so even if it's not a reply to the discussion topic that you're assigning to them, but just an example of a, of a healthy, safe, productive reply um, is really important because you can't, you can't do what you haven't seen, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they need to see those examples in order to do that. So, um, giving those, making sure that their per they, their purpose for replying to other people is clear. Like Linda said, it's really important that they have a purpose for doing that rather than just like, oh, reply to two people. And you're just like, what am I supposed to say? Cool, bro. Like, um, so I have always used, even in the high school world, I found this little graphic um, and I will put it on my Twitter if 
people want it. I don't know who the original creator is, so if anyone knows who it is, please let me know. I'd love to give credit. Um, but it's called the quackback. And so when you're replying, you're quacking back at other people. So that makes it fun, too. Um, but the Q stands for question, and then there's a stem. This one question I have is, so yeah, questioning yeah. that person's reply, you was understand. Help me understand this thing that you said. Or I agree or disagree because is the A. Um, and then you can compliment people. Like, I think you had a, like... I don't know, really insightful view of this. Obviously, that that language is more high school. But um, and then K is no more. Like, I would like to know more about what you said. Can you give me more? Um, Just to have those stems and like cooperative talk is huge um, at the the little level. Um, And but carrying that through, because I think that that is one of the things that kind of gets lost. Um, as the kids get older is that we don't focus on how to productively, you know, participate in academic activities. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. So, so fostering that sort of um, environment and getting, giving, like, it shouldn't be a mystery. Like Linda said, they shouldn't have to wonder how they're supposed to do things or what they need to do to be successful. You should provide them with what you're expecting them to do. And then, they should work to meet those expectations. Um, so as far as examples go, for K-5, this is a little bit, uh, maybe a hot take, um, but I think even if you cannot read, you can respond to discussions in Canvas. So even if you cannot read, even if you cannot type, like if you don't know letters, you can still reply to discussions because there is the, the media recorder right? In their rich content editor, it's built in. Kids, a lot of teachers of the littles get in this mindset of like, oh, they can't do that. They're in kindergarten, but they can because they know how to FaceTime their grandma on their mom's phone. So it's just that you have to build that habit. So you have to be intentional about teaching them how to get to those things and also putting a tutorial in the directions for the discussion so that if a parent is helping them with that, the parent will know what to do. Um, the teacher can provide the prompt via video for the kids. They know how to click play. And then they just go in to do a reply. They know what button to look for. They click it. They record their response and post it. So, um I think that the earlier we get them started on conversing academically with their their peers at their level, um, the better. And even like that can even be done asynchronously. So yeah, yeah. Um, I so I want to I want to jump in because yeah. there again, it's always one of these. You know, we always have educators in general. We always have like the intended outcomes. Right. Uh, What is the desired outcome from this learning experience that I've designed? Um, But what I'm hearing is, you know, at least as it as discussions go, there is certainly going to be sort of the intended outcome of um, sparking conversation about said uh, short story that we that we recently read and that's sort of the superficial thing but here's what I'm hearing and what I'm really getting stoked about 
is how so many other skills get uh get confronted if you will sort of as um sort of supporting that original outcome you know because what i'm hearing in a discussion is as a teacher if if i can come up with a, a you know a good prompt a good topic uh, fun or academic and if i've built a discussion you know uh properly and considered scaffolding and considered locking things down and making sure that I'm, uh, you know, holding my learners responsible uh, for this, for what they, how they communicate in the space. And I've provided them with sentence starters and stems and, and ways to sort of respond. If I've done that, not only am I getting conversation and discussion about the content, but I'm getting digital citizenship conversation secondarily. Um, kids are learning how to behave properly online. We're getting communication skills. This is happening. We're working on communication. This could be a discussion in a biology class, right? Mm -hmm. And so when my, you know, when my biology teacher says, I got a hard enough time teaching biology. Now you're telling me I got to confront English and language arts standards. I'm saying to them, do a discussion because you sort of like low key fool them <laughs> the students mm -hmm. into working on those skills when they just think they're talking about you know photosynthesis yeah, um, yeah and so, so you you're burying those other skills digital citizenship fluency uh communicate all, all those things are happening as well that's yeah, what gets me fired up i like to say that that's like sneaky teaching and yeah. that's something that um especially at the middle school and high school level is super important because we middle school and high school teachers are more specialized by nature than a K-5 teacher um, because we have our content area and we teach our content. We know everything about our content area. We teach our content area. We love, live, eat, sleep, breathe our content. It's not as often as it needs to be where teachers are planning things together and and doing things like interdisciplinary yeah. and discussions are a great way to sneak ela standards in there because they have um communication standards they have literacy standards they've got grammar standards like all that sneaks in there so they're getting it which can like we have at one of my middle schools um we have like the pe class is having kids read an article and then do a discussion about it. We're hoping, right, that when our EOG scores, our end of grade test scores come back, that their ELA scores are higher because they're sneaky getting this stuff because the article they read was like about pickleball or something. <laughs> um, so they think it's like, oh, this is for PE, but it's sneaky teaching in that ELA space. But and then like with the, the digital citizenship conversations, I think introducing um, peer review as a discussion in the middle school, high school world is a, is a great thing to start weaving in because then they learn how to talk critically, but not in a mean way. Weaving that in and scaffolding that, like we've talked about with like question stems or, or reply stems that they need to be look like look for us. Um, in their in their peers writing and then in the 9 through 12 space um, I've seen peer tutoring happen in discussions so once you're able to to release that 
um, that responsibility of creating discussion topics to the kids, they help each other more than I can help them. So, because they know how to talk to each other in a way that they'll understand each other. Mm -hmm. But so I might be saying something and they are not getting it, but somebody got it and they can help the person who has a question and you can do feedback like that. Um, They can type it, they can record themselves speaking about it, or they can record video. Cause like, if it was like some niche grammar thing in Latin that they had to like conjugate something, then they could film their self doing the work and then upload that for their peers to see. And that's like game changer, the best, right? Yeah. Yeah. We love that so much, Melissa and everything that you and Linda uh, have, you know, obviously been able to, to give us in uh, this part, we've decided that we're going to have you back (laughs) for a part two, Marcus, this has just been absolutely insane to go this long and then look at the, look at the clock and say, Oh, Let's just do a part two. We don't want to, we didn't even get to a break. So it's like we get to the break and we're like, well, we still may have another hour of this content because it's so good. And we know people are really interested in learning more about discussions. We've just decided to have them back. So let's just do it. Let's do it next week. Yes. Yeah. I I think takeaways from part one um, that (laughs) have happened right here on the fly. Uh, But I mean, takeaways is just, it's it's that sneaky teaching, as uh, Melissa said. I just love that. That, that discussions can can create uh, opportunities to not just to go beyond that discussion and the content of it, but really be working on some of those other um, other skills, communication skills, listening skills, uh, review and editing skills. All of this stuff is happening. And I just love that, you know, this one little nugget of Canvas can do so much. And I think that's why people that love discussions love it is because they have recognized the power and the multiple levels of, of learning that can happen. And I certainly did not. And, and now I'm like, I'm sold, like, let's go. Uh, so I really hope that, um, when we come back in part two, we'll, we've got so much more, there's so much more. And I, we cannot wait to get, uh, Melissa and Linda back, uh, and the next part two to come out because you guys are going to be on the edge of your seat waiting to hear more, uh, especially if you're a little tentative or hesitant about discussions. Yeah, we're excited to have them back. So part two will come after this. We can't thank Melissa and Linda enough for being a part of the podcast. We are excited for you to learn more about all things discussing discussions. Is that how you did that, Marcus? Discussing discussions, what's your function? Okay, we didn't pay. We didn't pay for that. We didn't pay for that. Uh, join us next time on the Canvas Casters podcast. <laughs> <laughs>